Jesus was a kind of radical figure and he sought to disrupt the status quo. What would he make of all of these culture wars today? And what would he make of the people who stand at the side of pride marches and kind of heckle and sort of shout kind of fire and brimstone? I think regardless of whether or not he would say, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm down with, with gay people and gay marriage, I think he'd definitely be saying, whoa, hang on a minute, even if you hold those beliefs to are true, like, what are you doing standing at the side of this parade and shouting at people and abusing them? This is not the way you're going to bring them into your church. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Emma Fowle. The Profile is the show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, their faith and their ministry. It's brought to you in association with Premier Christianity, the UK's leading Christian magazine. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, as well as all of the latest news, reviews, columnists and much more. Plus, there's great new digital content uploaded every day to our website, premierchristianity.com. To get full access wherever you are in the world, there are print and digital subscription options available. Get the magazine delivered directly to your door or access all of the latest content via your computer, smartphone or the Premier Christianity app. Head over to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe for more information. Today on the profile, I speak to Wes Streeting MP. From London's East End to the halls of Westminster, Labour's Shadow Health Minister talks about growing up in poverty, reconciling his faith and sexuality and building bridges across political divides. It isn't just West Streeting's background that makes him something of a political unicorn though. Born to a teenage mum, his early years were a struggle and yet he rose to graduate from the University of Cambridge with a passion for social justice and is now one of the Labour Party's hotly tipped stars. Streeting also speaks with an artlessness that is rare in a politician. A working class boy who loves the smells and bells of high Anglicanism, he's open about his Christian faith and his identity as a gay man. Throughout our interview, which he squeezed into the busy week in which the NHS turned 75, we barely touch on his portfolio at all. And instead, I pepper him with the hard questions on the thorny issues that arise when faith, sexuality and politics collide. There are no uncomfortable questions, he tells me, and in the most part, he answers everything I ask very candidly. The only time I'm given a, a slight party line is when we broach the topic of sex education. After a non-answer about safeguarding and consent, I press him again. Most Christians don't have a problem with safeguarding, I suggest, but they don't want to be sacked, cancelled or called transphobes for holding traditional views on marriage, sexuality and gender. Is there a space in today's culture wars in which we can disagree well? Streeting is himself an ex-Stonewall employee, um, but he answers with an emphatic yes. We live in a liberal democracy, he says, and that cuts both ways. Good faith when discussing these tough issues is sadly in short supply, he um, reflects as the interview draws to an end. He was particularly keen to speak to Premier Christianity precisely because of this, he tells me. As I step back outside into the sunshine, I reflect on our time together. Disagreeing with someone's views while still respecting them as a person should be a basic prerequisite for a compassionate, democratic society. 
But often conversations can sometimes feel more like a battle than a grown-up discussion. Not so with streeting. It's rare to meet a politician so willing to wear his heart on his sleeve. And while I don't share his point of view on everything, I do commend him for his honesty and genuine desire to reach across the religious and political divides. Whatever our views, the world just might be a little bit of a better place if we're all a bit more Wes. Let's listen into the interview now. Well, I mean, first of all, congratulations on finding out that your book has just made the Times bestseller. Yeah. Like a week after it's been released, so that's amazing. Yeah, I was pretty shocked. I've been absolutely sort of blown away by the response to the book, and it is definitely the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever done in my life because if it was a book that's about my sort of vision for Britain or you know, the future of the health service, yeah. it wouldn't feel quite as vulnerable and personal as like, laying out my life and my family on the pages of a book. So the reaction to it, the positive reaction to it has meant a lot to me and to my family. I think the nerves have begun to subside now, but for the, the days leading up to the publication, I was absolutely terrified. I thought, what on earth have I done? Why have I done this? Um, but no, it's really, it's brilliant. So to have um, to have landed in the top five, uh, it's just extraordinary, really. I didn't expect it. I've got loads of stuff that I want to talk to you about today. And I'm obviously just going to recommend that people go out, buy your book, <laughs> Two Bills, One Boy and a Fry Up. It's a fantastic story. But just very briefly, give us a, sort of a little bit of a taste of the highlights, if you want to call it those, of your interesting and unusual childhood. Yeah, well, I wrote the book partly because... Um, I think people have a certain view about politicians and our backgrounds. And not only am I from an unusual background in that I grew up in a work, very working class family and experienced poverty growing up, um, the, the sort of the characters and their experiences in my family and in the book are extraordinary even by those standards. So the one boy is obviously me. The two Bills are my two grandfathers. Um, on my dad's side of the family, Bill Streeting, um, you know, Royal Navy veteran in World War Two, worked hard all his life as a civil engineer. He was very much a conservative with a big C and a small C, and very much a sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps working class Tory who only ever voted uh, liberal in Tower Hamlets to keep Labour out. So that tells you how Tory he was. Um, a Christian, and by far and away the sort of the the most important relationship I've had in my 40 years and remarkable man and then the other Bill Bill Crowley my mum's dad total opposite in and out of prison throughout my mum's childhood my childhood um, for a string of convictions for armed robbery a lovely man in lots of respects ironically having set out his criminal past and someone whose childhood was also really difficult. And one of the things I talked about in the book was the, the way in which he opened up late in his life about the um, both physical and sexual abuse he experienced at the hands of his father, which when I learned that, everything else seemed to make sense about his life because I used to, I used to debate with him about politics, about religion. He was a staunch atheist. And... I used to think, how is someone who is this smart and well-read, funny, and in a number of ways very kind, how has he ended up in prison? And suddenly his childhood made that make sense. 
Um, and then there's the fry-up, which is the fry-up that literally saved my life. My mum was 18, my dad was 17 when I was, when I was conceived. I'm very much an accident. It was not planned and their relationship sadly didn't last. But my mum was under enormous pressure to have an abortion. And the whole family, my mum included, agreed that was the right thing to do. But had the appointment booked, but in the days leading up to the um, appointment, she had a change of heart. She decided she really wanted to keep a baby. And so on the day of the abortion appointment, she did what she was explicitly told she mustn't do, which was to eat before the, the appointment. And she cooked herself a full English breakfast, knowing full well that if my nan kicked off, as she did, um, then there was no way she could frog march to the hospital or, or browbeaten into it. So... It is literally the fry-up that saved my life. <laughs> that is an incredible story. Yeah. And you've touched there, your, your granddad was a Christian, but apart from his own personal faith, which you talk about in the book as, as being you know, fairly low-key and, and private to him, you didn't really have any other sort of faith influences in your life, did you? So? Not, not in my family. I mean, I, I sort of came to the church literally through primary school. Um, I went to a wonderful primary school called St Peter's um, in Wapping, which as the name suggests, connected to St. Peter's Church on, on Wapping Lane. So every week we would walk down to the church to take part in the weekly school service. I loved I loved it. I loved the, the smells and the bells of Anglicanism. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just the singing of the hymns or the smell of the incense and the ritual of it all. Um, you know, I was listening to what was being said at the front and, you know, very much believed in God and was a committed Christian to the extent that when we were given the opportunity to be um, baptised and confirmed towards the end of my time at primary school, I decided that I wanted to do it. And the hardest job I had was convincing my then atheist mum, she is now a Christian, and my still atheist dad, that I was old enough to go through with it. And I, I had to beg and beg and cajole and persuade them to say yes. And in the end, I deployed my granddad and I had a long conversation with him saying how important my faith was, how committed I was, that I recognised this was a real commitment, and but it was one that I wanted to make and I felt mature enough to make. So in the end, granddad stepped in, persuaded my sceptical parents and I was allowed to be baptised and confirmed. And then I went to a non-denominational Christian secondary school, Westminster City, and, and different, different arrangement. We didn't go to church every week, but I took part in the school's Eucharist every month. And ironic, in a, in a wonderful kind of coincidence, we used to, when we did have church services for sort of big occasions, like the Christmas concert or you know, a couple of other major services a year, we used to go to St. Margaret's Church next to Westminster Abbey which is the parish church of the House of Commons. So it's, um, it's, it's a nice coincidence that the church I attended um, at an inner city state school was now the church that I attend as a member of Parliament. Yeah, it's a really interesting coincidence, isn't it? I was, I was going to ask you about that. In some ways, you know, m- many people might say, oh, perhaps God had a plan for your life at that young age. Is that something you've ever thought about? Do you feel like politics is your calling? Is it something... It definitely feels like, I mean, yeah, I, I, it, I've, always, I've always been interested in politics and for all the cynicism about politics and politicians, which I well understand and is not completely unjustified, 
Um, I feel that this is a a noble calling. It is an act of public service, and and it's a way of serving others and giving back to others. And most people, I think, who work in this place are actually committed to the service of others and are motivated by honourable intentions, even if I might not always agree with their policies or views. Um, I think the intentions are, are good. And and it's a shame that the actions of a minority taint people's view of the majority of politicians. Mm. And it's it's interesting, isn't it? We've watched in uh, particularly in recent months, politicians get uh, like Cape Forbes up in Scotland get quite a hard time for Christian views. Is that something you've ever come across, or do you think potentially um, this is a maybe a contentious question? Do you get an easier ride in inverted commas because you're also a gay Christian? So no, I don't. I don't. No, I think I think um, my deep sadness is that. When I have talked about my Christianity, particularly on social media, so recently we had the big um, parliamentary prayer breakfast, which happens once a year. It's a wonderful occasion. We fill Westminster Hall with MPs, members of the House of Lords, and um, priests and pastors from churches across the country. It's wonderful. And a range of churches across the country. And I tweeted about what a wonderful occasion it was. And what I saw in my social media mentions is fairly representative of what I get whenever I mention my faith, which is not just hostility, but fear. And I think there are lots of people who are not religious in this country who fear religious legislators because they fear that we will seek to impose orthodox religious teaching on people who aren't religious, and particularly on social issues like abortion or LGBT rights or assisted dying and um, and I find that really sad actually because I think what you know whatever view people take on those issues I do think that the fundamental message of Christianity but also I think it applies to other major faiths is about love compassion care for others and when I think about my own community very diverse religious community on the London Essex border so much of the really positive social action that people would applaud is driven by people of faith and places of worship you know the food banks the homelessness response fundraising for international appeals and disasters around the world of course there are lots of people who are religious who have a really strong social conscience and a strong set of ethical values but it's no coincidence that people of faith are out there fundraising and assisting and helping and caring for others I think it's part of the calling of faith and I'm so sad that when people think about a Christian in politics their, their first thought isn't they'll be motivated by love and compassion and care for others. It's, will they vote against my civil rights or my social rights? And I find that really sad. Um, and I found it sad watching Kate Forbes, actually, in the Scottish leadership election, because, I mean, I, didn't, I don't agree with Kate, you know, in terms of our voting records would 
you know, I'm, I'm not sure what vote she's had and I've had thinking about it, but there's no doubt based on what she said, we would vote differently on some social issues. But I felt sad and I thought, well, I can see two things going on here. One, it is perfectly legitimate for people to ask us where we stand and how we would vote. And then not to vote for us if, if our voting intentions or our voting records don't live up to um, voters' expectations in democracy. They've got a right to vote for, for someone else. Mm. But I did feel sad um, because I thought, you know, I don't, I, I just felt uncomfortable watching her come under attack for her beliefs, mm. even though the ones I disagree with. Yeah. And do, do you, is there any sense that, you know, we have a Hindi prime minister at the moment? We have, um, she obviously lost to Hamza in Scotland. Is there a sense that Christians get an even harder right than prominent politicians of other faiths, or do you not think that really bears into it? I think I think all, I actually think the Abrahamic faiths I think have a harder time, partly because even in a country that's increasingly secular, I think there's a greater depth and, and breadth of understanding about the fundamental tenets of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Mm. And especially where orthodox teaching on social issues lies in those three faiths, I think it's lack of awareness about Hinduism and Sikhism that that sees politicians from those communities not have to pass a faith test in a way that I think, you know, Christians have to pass and Jewish and Muslim colleagues have gone through. Um, I could be wrong on that, and you know, one, you know, there may be Hindu and Sikh colleagues who say, "Well, actually, let me tell you about my experience." Yeah. Um, but that's my hunch and my my assumption based on based on conversation I've had. I mean, I think it's wonderful that we, for all the criticisms I have of Rishi Sunak's policies, I think it's wonderful that we live in a country where you've got a Hindu prime minister in in Westminster, you've got a um, Muslim first minister in Scotland, you've got Muslim mayor of London, and even in a you know in a in a country that is that has an established Christian church and actually people are increasingly secular, I think it's great to see people of, of faith full stop being able to participate fully in public life and and reach the highest offices in the land. I think that's a that's a that's a thing we should celebrate about our country is is our diversity and inclusion. So let's talk about the established church. Obviously, you, you, you said you love the smells and bells of the Anglican church. There's obviously been a lot of contention in recent months around the, the wranglings over same-sex relationships. You've had fellow MPs like Ben Bradshaw arguing that maybe this means it's the time for the church and the state to be decoupled. You've talked about your own experience of loving um, being in a Church of England school and that, the exposure that that yeah. gave you to, to faith and uh, speaking very positively as well in the book about the diversity of ethnicities that you went to school with and how you appreciated learning about other faiths and other faiths appreciated learning about your faith too and there's always been those arguments around state schools and the involvement with faith as well how, where do you stand on those issues should state and church be more separate should we be keeping edu- uh, you know faith out of education and, and public life or do you still think i think the truth is if i were if i were designing the education system from scratch i wouldn't have faith schools ironically despite having gone to two and loved every minute of it and actually derived my faith largely from school partly because i represent such a religious constituency and a diverse constituency i do have a slight anxiety that we're going to end up in a situation where you know the jewish pupils go to the to the to the jewish secondary school um, or primary schools and then and um, sikh kids go to the sikh secondary school and 
the Hindu kids go to the Hindu primary school and, and they want a Hindu secondary school. And then basically the Christian kids and the secular kids end up in the Christian schools and a bit spill over into the others. I think one of the things that I love about my borough is both the diversity and also um, the community cohesion. And so I worry a bit about the, the, the kind of cohesion dimensions. But having said that, you know, we have a legacy of faith schools in this country, mostly Christian secondary schools and some Jewish, um, some sort of Christian schools, full stop, and Jewish schools. And it's totally understandable that people of other faiths say, well, hang on a minute, they've got them and we would like them. And, you know, one of, one of I, mean, I probably shouldn't say I have favourites, but one of my favourite primary schools in my constituency to visit is our local Hindu primary school. Um, and it's a wonderful place. They do some really interesting things that are inspired by Hinduism from, um, you know, teaching children yoga and, and, and mindfulness through to having a very delicious, nutritious, vegetarian menu. And I can understand why parents make choices to send their children to schools where the ethos is consistent with faith at home. And in some cases, in my constituency, like our, our Jewish secondary school, um, King Solomon, increasingly pupils who attend are not Jewish and Jewish parents get the best of both worlds. They get their children being taught um, in a school with a strong and proud Jewish ethos, but they're mixing with kids from other faiths and backgrounds. So I think it's the best of both worlds. You know, I certainly wouldn't um, waste time trying to unscramble uh, faith schools or say, right, we've, we're full up with state school, uh, faith schools now, no more faith schools or we're going to abolish faith schools. I think that would be a distraction, actually. I think our focus has got to be on making sure that every school is a great school and making sure that where we do have boroughs like mine with a variety of faith schools, that we're working together as much as possible to give children from different faiths and backgrounds the chance to interact with each other more. That would be the approach I take. As for the Church of England... I felt so conf conflicted about the debate in the in the church around equal marriage because, um, you know, as I describe in my book, my faith made it very, very difficult to accept my sexuality and feeling like I was forced to choose actually created at one point a schism and I stopped going to church and I, I never, I never at any point said I'm no longer Christian but I felt a separation from the church that I'd never experienced before, and it made me deeply sad. Uh, and I, I wish that the Church of England could more wholeheartedly embrace same-sex relationships. And where we've got to, I would describe as a classic Church of England fudge, um, and also with some humility as a politician, a classic political fudge. But having said that, I I also had a huge amount of sympathy and empathy for the Archbishop of Canterbury because he has an incredibly difficult and important job of trying to hold together the Church of England where there are some big differences of opinion and sincerely held differences of opinion and also the glo Global Advocate Communion, which is really important and you know, when, when his average, you know, parishioner, you know, a constituent in my sort of language is, 
a woman living in sub-Saharan Africa on less than a dollar a day, I can see why um, he has got perhaps bigger priorities. Um, so uh, I think we've, we've got on to a place that was better. I, where I do disagree with some some people who campaigned for full recognition and of same-sex marriages within the church, um, I, I think where we've got to is actually progress of sorts. Um, but not not as far as I would have liked, but, you know, I think it was a, you know, like many compromises, an unhappy compromise, but an improvement on where we were before. And I hope that people don't feel left out in the cold by the church thing, because I think that's the opposite of what um, the Archbishop of Canterbury wants to achieve. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective. It's time to discover Premier Christianity. Balanced, confident, relevant, faith-filled. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. Now only five pounds for three months. And, and how did you reconcile that, that schism in your own personal life? What did it take for you to get to a point where you could hold both together? You, you talk in the book of, uh, and I think it was on another podcast that I heard you say that some of your friends had got to a point where they felt they needed to walk away from yeah because of their sexuality. Um, how did you get over that? Well, I thought, well, fundamentally, see, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, and I subscribe to the fundamental tenets of our faith. So... Just because I've got a difficulty in one area doesn't mean I'm just going to junk the rest. And also, I think where I've got to now is a place where I could finally reconcile my identity with theology. I mean, I'm not... I have some sympathy with a view that says, well, you can't pick and mix, and you can't pick and mix which bits you follow and which bits you don't. You can't say, well, actually, I think eight out of the ten commandments are terrific, but two I'm not down with. Like, that's not... That's kind of not how this works, right? So... But I think that's the chip. That's the difference of where I was and where I am today. I feel like I am theologically reconciled that we're made in God's image, and I think God has created gay people, and that we are accepted, and our relationships are valid and important. And actually, although it's although um, it's a view I sort of came to myself after sort of deep reflection and you know thinking about the New Testament and what Jesus says and thinking about what the Old Testament says and, um, uh, and you know, the extent to which and where I think sometimes the conservative elements of the church are, are inconsistent is they get very hung up on the bits of Leviticus that they, you know, would say this is where homosexuality is ruled as sinful or an abomination. But they do quite a bit of pick and mix around, you know, food laws, um, clothing, and lots of other examples that I think kind of get kicked around. But I think actually the best book I've read recently, and you know, I've been I've been promoting this book recently almost as much as mine, um, is Michael Corrin's um, book, The Rebel Christ. I thought it was just extremely powerful book that I think I found it kind of faith affirming. And also kind of in a, in a way that I've never been able to, I think just articulated kind of what I think the fundamental message of the New Testament is and actually how it informs my politics, which is, 
you know, Jesus was a kind of radical figure who was enraged by the injustices of the time and, and what he saw around him. And he sought to disrupt the status quo and to change things for the better. And he was, you know, as the title suggests, the rebel Christ. And, um, you know, I think that what would he make of all of these culture wars today? And what would he make of the people who stand at the side of pride marches and kind of heckle and sort of shout, kind of fire and brimstone? Um, I think... I think regardless of whether or not he would say, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm down with, with gay people and gay marriage, I think he'd definitely be saying, well, hang on a minute, even if you hold those beliefs to be true, like, what are you doing standing at the side of this parade and shouting at people and abusing them? This is not the way you're going to bring them into your church. And, um, and it's not your place to judge. And those things I think I can be kind of as certain as certain can be, I think he wouldn't support that kind of persecution and 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 hostility. I don't think he would be, um, you know, relaxed about the judgment that people lay towards others because ultimately, you know, I think we're told very clearly, judge not lest you be judged. So I think those, those things for me are clear. Was there a point in time where you were like, actually, I think, you know, I can be part of this and I want to start going back to church? Or was it just sort of a very slow journey for you? A very slow journey. I mean, I always, I always describe myself as a practicing Christian, but not very good at it. Um, and I don't go to church nearly as much as I should. And I always feel, I'm, I'm t- I mean, partly it's the sort of the life I lead, and the, but you know, that, that's really no excuse. And certainly, you know, readers of this publication are going to have zero sympathy. It's, hey, like, what on earth are you doing? Get out of bed at Sunday morning. Get up on a Sunday morning, get yourself down there. Um, but and I, yeah, so I don't. I do not want to be the person who only turns up Man. for midnight mass and Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday, which is sort of now I now I think about it the last three times that I've been to church. Um, but you know, I yeah, uh, I I feel in a very comfortable place with my identity and my faith, mm. and I feel like I have a relationship with God again that that makes me happy. So my last question on sexuality, then we'll move on to something else. <laughs> Okay, going back to what you said about education and, and not wanting to create these these silos and saying that you had some sympathy with, with parents who wanted to educate their children in a way that was in um, line with their, their own ethos and their beliefs. I mean, one of the biggest areas of contention in the recent years has obviously been alongside evolution and the teaching of science, schools, sex education, which again has been in, in the news recently with Miriam Kate, so mm-hmm. seeing, which she's seen acts that urgently review how sex ed is, is taught in schools and I know from working in a Christian publication, this is something that comes up all the time. Yeah, people are worried. Deeply yeah. concerned about it. Having worked, you know, particularly for you, having worked for an organisation like Stonewall that comes under a lot of flack from Christian, uh, from you know, conservative Christians, traditional Christians, what would you do? You have a view on that debate? Is there a way that we can do this in a way that's healthy and that doesn't? Yeah, I think I think that's yeah, absolutely. I think that um, sex and relationships education has to be age appropriate. And I think it has to be inclusive and I think it has to be um, delivered in a context where we know, sadly, children are not always safe and are vulnerable to harm or to um, exhibiting harmful behaviours to others. And even more tragically, in terms of child abuse cases, much of that harm occurs at home. So I think we have a 
safeguarding duty to children and young people to keep them safe to make sure that they are equipped with the vocabulary and the confidence to be able to tell a trusted adult like a teacher if they are at risk of or subjected to harm and abuse. So I, I come at this first and foremost from a safeguarding perspective. I also think from a sexual health point of view, I think it's really important that young people, as they are kind of entering puberty and their bodies are changing and their hormones are raging and in a in a world very different to the one that I grew up in with the internet and the availability of pornography at the touch of a button to young people where they are seeing images and relationships or or interactions between people which I think are actually really unhealthy whether in terms of unsafe sex or in terms of abusive sometimes even behavior or misogynistic behavior certainly it's very common in pornography. I think it's really important that children and young people at an appropriate age are taught about keeping safe, making good, healthy choices, and also being given the confidence, again, to kind of say no to unwanted behaviour or harassment or harmful behaviour. And... I don't think this relegates the role of parents or faith. And actually, one of the arguments I've always used with faith communities in my own constituency is, look, if you are coming from a perspective that says no sex before marriage or even no same-sex relationships or you know, sort of other um, orthodox religious teaching, if you're saying that a 45-minute lesson with a PSHE teacher or a form teacher is going to undo all of the teaching that you do as parents or the preacher does on Sunday at church or Friday in the mosque or the shul, get yourself a better preacher. Because you know, if, if you're faith teaching at home or um, in a place of worship is any good, um, children will heed that in the context of sex and relationship and education at school. And I don't think it prevents parents and, and preachers from teaching abstinence or um, or anything else. But I think it's so important that we have age-appropriate and inclusive um, education. And the final thing is, on relationships, obviously we live in a country where, you know, the sort of the traditional family unit of a mum and a dad um, is not always the, 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 the family we grow up in. I mean, in my case, I'm very lucky. My mum and dad have always been in my life, but for half my childhood, lived with, with, with my mum as a single mum, and the other half of my childhood with a single dad um, for, for periods of time. And I lived with my granddad, who was acting as a kinship carer. People have step parents, people have adopted parents, foster parents, and people might have two mums and two dads. And I think it's important that young people understand that and the world they're growing up in and different types of family that they will come into contact with. And actually, I think that far from undermining faith, this actually helps to protect faith communities as well, because I think, you know, we want to make sure that people understand that, um, you know, they might be growing up in a Christian family or a Muslim family or a Jewish Jewish family, and that will bring with it certain um, customs, um, obligations, and so understanding that, you know, your friends might be able to play football on a Friday night because that's when they're at sh- shul and having Shabbat dinner, or understanding that, 
you know, on Sunday morning, you're going to be at church. I think that's actually really important for helping people to understand different families, different relationships, different faith communities. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think the crucial thing, though, is making sure that it is age appropriate, that it's safe and, and that parents know what's on the curriculum. So then I think they can be reassured. I think that's the the big thing that's coming up at the moment, isn't it? That, that a lot of parents feel they don't have, they're not being informed or they can't get access to what's being taught and that they don't understand it. And I think, yeah, I, I think that most parents of most moderate faith traditions would agree with everything that you've just said. But there are flashpoints there and, and the scene, you know, they come up quite often. Mm. We hear stories of parents that feel that their school has discriminated against them because they don't want their child to take part in a pride march, for example, or a teacher that is sat over a transgender pronoun issue or things like that, or a chaplain that lost his job because he wanted to talk to, to kids about the, the possibilities of the being different views from... from and, and many people see this as an, like a, an aggressive ideology into schools. Is it a problem? Are, are, are parents overreacting? When those sort of two extremes butt up against each other, how do we teach tolerance without making it an, an environment where discussion is it's not okay to say my faith disagree because of my faith I disagree with yeah I, and I think that's that's where we've got to get our country back to um I was I was really pleased just this week to see Peter Tatchell defending Maya Forstater's right to freedom of speech like Peter I I disagree with a number of things that that she said Mm. but we live in a democracy and we live in a liberal democracy and that cuts both ways and you know I'm I'm very kind of clear about the fact that for example much as I would strongly urge the Church of England to get behind equal marriage there are no circumstances in which I as a legislator would impose by law an obligation on the Church of England to do that. And when the same-sex marriage bill went through, I thought it was really important to make it clear that no place of worship would be obligated to perform same-sex marriages and there'd be no consequences for um, preachers and religious leaders who who say, I'm sorry, that's not consistent with the tenets of my faith. Um, I think the, the crucial thing we've lost is 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 respect and respectful difference and respect in the way that we conduct these debates and arguments as well. Um, and, um, it, you know, it can be upsetting. And, I'm, you know, I'm not going to pretend that when colleagues in Parliament stand up and say they're opposed to my rights as a gay person, that I'm not offended by that or hurt by it. I am. Um, but I think I've learned to, you know, I mean, you know, I've got, you know, well, I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. One, one of my great friends in Parliament, who, without whom I would not have been elected, who came to campaign for me all the time, is Sir Stephen Timms, whose faith is well known. He is an evangelical Christian, and he's voted against a number of um, LGBT rights. Not least, um, he voted against equal marriage, and yet. I think he's one of the kindest, loveliest people I've ever met in my entire life. And his voting record doesn't stop me from respecting him. And I think 
I think if we can get to a place of democracy where we can feel like that more often about people we disagree with, we will be in a healthier, happier place. But it's quite difficult, I think, to get to that place when people are, the, the, the language and the discourse is so harsh and so uncompromising that people do end up feeling very attacked and it's taking place in the context of raging culture wars in which lots of people are picking up newspapers or turning on the TV and are feeling very attacked for who they are and that's hard. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I do really appreciate you being willing to talk so honestly and openly about it. I think um, we could do with more of that kind of conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate Healthy that. disagreement, yeah. you know, tables, not not um, battle lines of thinking is what we need. So you mentioned earlier that your mum is a Christian now. Is that because of you, your experience? Or? No, I don't think so. I think she's gone on on her own kind of, um, on her own journey. And yeah, it's something that I think is now very important to her. Uh, and it's it's funny because growing up, I would never have expected that. And we, we didn't really talk about, I mean, you know, she was perfectly proud of me making my own choices, but... Um, and Kate, to my kind of baptism and confirmation, was proud because she could see I was happy and I was doing something I, would, I enjoyed. But that was about the the sort of the depth of it, really. Um, and, and you know, my my I mean, her mum, my nanny Libby, who was a big character in the book. I mean, she she was very active in the Salvation Army, and it was the death of her um, eldest son Paul, my uncle Paul, in a car accident when he was you know hit by a car, I think at the age of seven, and. I think like lots of people who go through such an unbearably painful tragedy in their lives, I think sometimes it does one of two things. It drives you closer to God and faith could be a comfort or it drives a wedge and you think, how could you have done this to me? And that's and she landed in a place where it created a wedge and it wasn't until um, she was kind of in, you know, on her deathbed really that she 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 revisited her faith and found peace. And you've been through your own challenges as well. You talk in the book about a, a brush of cancer when you were in your 30s. It was a little bit shocking and unexpected and in the middle of all sorts of inconvenient political uh, goings on at the time. Did your faith help you during that time or w- was it one of those things? It did. I mean, having a good prognosis also helped. But no, I mean, look, my faith is also a source of comfort. And um, I mean, I was, I just feel very lucky, actually, despite the sort of circumstances I grew up in and the hardships we experienced and the things that I wouldn't want any child to go through. I I also think I've had amazing chances and experiences in my life. And right now I'm living my best life. I'm doing a job that I love, um, working as part of a team that is fun to be with. And I get up every day just feeling very, very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. So I've got a lot to be grateful for. And I often find myself, you know, saying, saying thanks to God rather than, you know, asking for things. Um, but yeah, so I, um, yeah, so I just feel very lucky to be honest and very blessed with my life. And I think that, you know, the adversities and challenges I face, the things that I've learned from and have made me more of a resilient person. And what have I, honestly, what have I got to complain about? <laughs> and even with my cancer diagnosis, I mean, I spoke the other week for the first time about a bit of survivor's guilt that I have, partly because, um, you know, sort of having lost a really dear friend and mentor to cancer recently, Margaret McDonough, the first woman general secretary of the Labour Party and the best general secretary the Labour Party's ever had. And I think, you know, she, she died far too young. And I think, well, why was I okay and why wasn't she? 
So, yeah, I mean, I, on one hand, and this is how I got through my experience of kidney cancer, actually. I just thought, on one hand, how, how unlucky I am to have a cancer diagnosis at the age of 38. But on the other hand, I thought, they've caught it early. By chance, they found kidney stones. How unlucky am I? I had an operation that meant I was back at work within a couple of months. How lucky am I? And... I've hopefully got my whole life ahead of me. How lucky am I? So I don't tend to feel too sorry for myself, even when there are things that go wrong in life. So you're taking all that into cons- into consideration, and I, I, I get this overwhelming sense reading the book, which is really beautifully put, that you do feel so grateful um, for the, the the course that your life has taken and the things that you've been able to achieve, which is truly remarkable. So I, I genuinely, we haven't had time to touch on the half of your experiences at Cambridge or how you got there and all the other wonderful anecdotes in the, in the book, which people have to read for themselves. But so if you had uh, the opportunity to say, right, this is what I want to do with the, the next 40 years of my life, what, what would your legacy be what is it that you're really passionate about achieving? I think there are two, two things. One is, if the only thing I ever achieve in my life in politics is to take the NHS from its worst crisis in history to an NHS that is there for us where we need it, fit for the future, free of the points of use, available to everyone, I will feel so blessed that that's what I've spent my life doing. And I think beneath that is my kind of fundamental driving mission, which is I want to make sure that every child in this country, whatever their background, has access to the same life chances and opportunities as everyone else. And I'd extend that more kind of internationally most most of my focus in politics is always, it was always on like domestic policy politics and public services but i think one of the great things about the church is you know we do have a we do have a global community and um there is no reason why in the 21st century um a child growing up in the poorest communities of sub-saharan africa shouldn't grow up with the opportunities to have the same security, joy and opportunities as a child growing up in the wealthiest parts of the wealthiest countries in the world. That was Wes Streeting MP speaking to me, Emma Fowl, here on Premier Christian Radio. We hope you enjoyed this interview. For hundreds more conversations just like this one, you can download The Profile as a podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you normally get your podcast from or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. <laughs>